Okay, so we're going to get started. Good morning. We're in the book of Hebrews. You see 7, 8 in terms of chapters. There are some, some topics that are so intertwined that we will be talking about 7, 8, and 9. But in terms of following verse by verse, we're doing 7 and 8. So final comments on chapter 6. Chapter 6 was talking about salvation. And the, the whys and the wherefores and the ifs, ands, and buts. And we covered that. But then chapter 6 ends with this, con this notion. We're confident of better things that accompany salvation. Now, when I received salvation, I was given eternal life. But there are some things that come along with salvation, and we're going to dive into those in more detail later on. But first of all, with salvation comes good works, not as a requirement, but as a byproduct. I want to live for Jesus. I don't have to live for Jesus. We have a love of Christ. We, have, we love him because he first loved us. And we have a love for the brethren. We know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And we show that love by helping the brethren. And of course, the motivation, the love of Christ. Good morning. So, also in chapter 6, I want to make a comment about the anchor because my grandchildren said, what's this anchor stuff? Well, they know what an anchor is because I have a boat. But it, it made for a great object lesson. When I drop that anchor in the water, now we're in Chesapeake, so it's not clear. But if I drop that anchor in the water, you see the rope, and then you see the water, and you see nothing else. But I know, because the boat only drifts so far and then it stops, I know that anchor's holding on to something. And so Jesus is our anchor. We see, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner <coughs> sanctuary behind the curtain. Old Testament, the new translations say veil. Now we come to the New Testament and it, trans it turns out the curtain. King James stays consistent with veil throughout the word. But... He's writing to the Hebrew believers, and they have been conditioned all their lives that that high priest goes behind the veil to offer atonement, and it's once a year at Yom Kippur. So they know that guy goes out there. They have that rope attached to his ankle in case he dies. If that rope is wiggling, they know that he's there, but they can't see him. We have an anchor. We have a veil that's been ripped top to bottom, but we still can't see our high priest because he's in the heavens. So we have this verse where Jesus who went before us, he entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That would be the heart of what we're studying today, the order of Melchizedek. And we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through his curtain, that is, his body. Jesus, God ripped the veil top to bottom when Jesus died, and now we have confident access. If there's just a couple of words that brings all of the book of Hebrews together, it's right here. He meets our need. And you can pause for a second or you can pause for the entire day and say, well, what is my need? And whatever it is, 
He meets it. Now, the most important need that I have is I need for eternal life. And he's taking care of that for me. And then we use the word he provides for us. That word provide comes from the word pro and vi. Video to see and pro forward, to see forward. Now, we think of provide like he's putting a meal on my table. But he also sees forward that he can provide my needs even before I ask. And so you see this verse from Daniel. We're starting a Bible study at an oracle uh, starting Wednesday on Daniel. Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego said, We're not careful to answer thee, O God, because our God is able. So here we have 2 Timothy. I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. We sing that song. And then we doubt our salvation or we doubt our security. He's able. You know, we talk about the phrase ready, willing and able. He's able. He's willing. God is not willing that any should perish. And he's ready. He's sitting at the right hand of the father to make intercession for us. And so Hebrews chapter seven talks about Melchizedek. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek appears three times in scripture. Once in Genesis, once in Psalms, and once in Hebrews chapter 7, about 10 times. Now, here's the history of Melchizedek. Abraham and his people had too many animals between his people and Lot's people and, and uh, flocks to stay in one spot. Abraham said to Lot, you pick your territory and I'll take the leftovers. Lot selected Sodom. Abraham is out. Living in his tent. We'll get to that tent when we get to chapter 11. And five kings come and sack Sodom. And they take Lot and his family and his goods all prisoner. Well, word comes to Abraham and he picks 318 men. They're not all in the photograph. He picks 318 men and goes and defeats those five kings. And when he comes back, this guy Melchizedek shows up. And Melchizedek is a king. The title, no, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then his title, king of Salem. Salem means peace. Jerusalem means the city of peace. So he may have been an ancient ruler of the city of Jerusalem. We don't know. But Melchizedek comes and he offers a sacrifice of bread and wine. You can see it there. And then Abraham, in respect for Melchizedek, gives Melchizedek 10% of all the stuff that they had recovered from the king, from the five kings. So here we go. I've said that the key word in Hebrews is the word better. And we see better than the priesthood, better than the covenant, better than the sacrifice, all wrapped up in one. So this study is going to be jumping back and forth across those different chapters. And you can see how they're even intertwined. Eight and eight, nine and nine. So who's Melchizedek? The king of righteousness, the king of peace. He was a king. He was a priest. And what did he do? He brought, he brought bread and wine. He blessed Abram. And then he received Abram's tenth. We'll talk a little bit about the tenth. 
talks about him being without father or mother, without genealogy. Anytime in that section of scripture when somebody's being introduced, it was clear that his father was so-and-so, his mother was so-and-so. He was a king, and the Jewish people knew their kingly line was coming from Judah, and he was a priest. And the Jewish people knew that the priests came from Levi. This is a no-no. Somebody could be a king and a prophet, as an example, the Bible says that Saul prophesied. You could be a prophet and a priest. Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest, but nobody was priest and king. So there's something very special about Melchizedek. There are the different times when he appears. And if you look at the underlines, the vast majority is really talking about Jesus. Jesus is a priest forever according to the order or in the order of Melchizedek. We talked about Genesis chapter 14. Now I want to take a look at Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord. Look at the different fonts in those two words. And then we're going to translate it a little bit more accurately. The second Lord comes from Adonai, which means the Almighty. The first Lord is a convention, that word is Yahweh. So really that verse is saying, I am says to my Almighty. Now what's interesting there is, this is God the Father speaking with God the Son. And when David, when the, the Pharisees attacked Jesus and they said, well, how can you consider yourself the son of David because the kingly line and all that? He quoted that verse and he said, how can the son, how can David the king call his son his Lord? And so David, there's a prophecy there that Jesus is coming to not just be an earthly king, but a heavenly king. We'll continue on through Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, this is the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand. When does Jesus get to sit at his right hand? I asked that wrong. How, do, how did, when did Jesus get to sit at Father's right hand? When he ascended into heaven. When he ascended into heaven, that's exactly right. And he sits at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. The Lord, I am, will extend your mighty scepter, meaning he's going to be a king, from Zion, from Jerusalem. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a double prophecy because David got set up as the king in Zion. They, the, Jerusalem had not been conquered until he sent Joab, and Joab climbs up through the, the tunnel of the water, and he gets inside the wall, and Jerusalem is defeated. David gets set up on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and David went and conquered all the kings that were around him to set his son Solomon up so that there was no war during Solomon's time. That's the first part of the prophecy. But the second part of the prophecy is that Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's setting up an earthly kingdom with the capital city of Jerusalem. And he's going to rule over everybody. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. Now David's troops were certainly loyal, but they weren't in royal majesty. It's going to be, the book of Jude tells us, all his saints with him. It's going to be us 
following Jesus into that battle, following and willing, but it's his battle. We're just going to be spectators, holy spectators. I am has sworn and will not change his mind. Hebrews 6, 18, the two immutable things that God cannot lie. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 20 says he made an oath. Now, if I was going to make an oath, I wouldn't say, I swear by this box of tissues. That's meaningless. I wouldn't say, I swear by the way, I might say it, but you say, John, you're crazy. I swear by Mount Vernon's building. If I say, I swear to God. Now, I don't recall ever using that phrase, but if I said, I swear to God, I'm swearing on somebody that is higher than myself, respected. There are some people who say, I swear, by my, I swear on my mother's grave, something that's respected. When God swore you are a priest forever, there was nothing higher than God, so he swore on himself. He made an, order, an oath, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and then the Almighty is at your right hand, the Son is at the Father's hand, and he will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. Revelation chapter 19, and then again in Revelation 20 and 21, there'll be two battles. The first battle, Jesus will be leaving heaven. The Bible says that his vesture will be dipped in blood, and he will defeat Satan's foes. And the Bible says that Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. After that time, the devil will be loosed, and the Bible says... He will deceive as many as the sands of the sea. And they will march on Jerusalem. They'll have a siege on Jerusalem. God the Son is the capital. God the Father sends down fire. And at that point, the Bible says the earth and heavens fade away. And there will be set up the great white throne. Not for us, we'll be spectators, but for the lost will be judged, not saved versus lost, but judged according to their works. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 6 that they gnawed on their tongues for pain, yet they would not repent of their works. The Bible says they call on the mountains to kill them, and they would not die. So then verse 8 talks about tithing. And some people would use that to, to mandate that there's this, there's this requirement that people would tithe. I have a friend that's a Jewish guy, and he, he goes to the synagogue, and he says that every year he has to turn in his W-2, and then they extract 10% from his W-2. He's under the law. I'm under grace. I should be giving of my free will to the amount that I feel I should be giving. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We're not under the law. And I don't care who's out there begging. We are to give free will offerings. Because the former regulation, that tithing thing, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope. I didn't have that on that list of things, but there's a better hope. I guess that's tied with the better promise. 
a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Because he did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent. Here was Moses, his big brother Aaron, and God the Father set up the Levitical priesthood, and Aaron became the first high priest. He had a pair of sons, and then it went down from there and down from there, always through the physical descent that these people became priests. In fact, when you came to Ezra's time, Ezra went and took a census, and they discovered that some of those guys that had priest duties weren't pure Levites, and they had to give up their jobs. They weren't wearing Levi jeans, if you will. But based on the power of an indestructible life. We have so many superlatives that get tied to Jesus. So Jesus versus other priests. First, he's permanent. The other priests died off. Jesus lives forever, always living to make intercession. When Moses was given his final marching orders actually to be passed on to Joshua because Moses was, Moses was going to die. Moses was told to set up six cities of refuge. And the idea of a city of refuge was if you killed somebody without forethought or without malice, you could go to that city of refuge because this person's nearest of kin, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, is going to kill you. And so you go to the city of refuge and you stay there until, and you have sanctuary until the high priest dies. And then when the high priest dies, you're free. Well, Jesus is never going to die, which means I have sanctuary. It's an interesting passage in the city of, of refuge. Abner, who was Saul's commander in chief, and then the Saul's group was kind of abating and David's group was getting stronger. Joab's little brother was chasing Abner. And Joab's little brother was a track star. We've got the Olympics coming on. He was a track star. And Abner, he kept saying, look, I don't have an argument with you. Stay away. So Abner's trying to retreat as best he can. And the, the little brother's chasing him and chasing him. So finally Abner takes the butt end of his sword and tries to keep little brother away from him. I wish I could remember his name. I want to say Akish, but I'm not sure. Little brother was running so hard that he ran right up onto that spear and the spear went between his ribs and killed him. Did Abner have malice? No. Did he have an aforethought? No. Abner goes to the city of refuge. He goes to Hebron, which means fellowship. He went for fellowship. He went to the city of of, of of Hebron, a city of refuge. And there's Joab at the city gates. Joab was smart because he knew that's where Abner was going to go. And Abner was one step away from going into the city. And Joab pulls out a dagger and kills Abner. And David attended the funeral. And he said, a prince dieth as a fool. He didn't take that last step into the fellowship of, of God, the city of refuge. And so the high priests die off, but Jesus is our high priest forever. 
The high priest would offer sacrifices day after day. Now, not the one where they would take the blood into the Holy of Holies, but every day they were killing sheep and goats. And remember Jesus and Mary and Joseph came with turtle doves because they didn't have enough money. They were offering sacrifices day after day. And if you want to read the ultimate butchery, read about how the Solomon's temple was uh, dedicated. Thousands of animals. What a bloody mess. But Jesus died, and I have it bold and underlined, once for all. How many applications does that have? Jesus died once for all. He died on the cross one time to take my sins away, past, present, and future. He died once on the cross for all peoples, past, present and future. And there's application after application on that phrase once for all. Whoa. Jesus was perfect. The other high priests, they were just like me. Sinners. So on that day of atonement, <clears throat> the mortal high priest would go in and first he would sacrifice for himself for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus didn't have to worry about the sins for himself because he was sinless. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there you see that phrase. Such a high priest, the high priest that's different than the others, meets our need. We do have such a high priest. Christ felt, let's think about that. I have this hangnail right here and it bothers me. I've got this hand knit, this hangnail, and he's got a hole. I've got a son that's recuperating from a crazy race, so it, it hurts my heart to see him suffer. But Jesus had a lamp for his heart. And you can go through example after example. Jesus has felt everything in the human experience, Jesus has been tempted with everything in the humoric experience. You know, Satan does not know everything, and Satan is not everywhere. The Bible says he roams to and fro. If he were everywhere, he wouldn't have to roam. He'd be there. He roams to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. And he doesn't know everything either. What he knows, he learns from us. This is my thoughts. He doesn't get in my head. But I will say this. He is a master in human nature. He knows human nature from Eden on. And so he and his demons know just, you see, Satan's worried about the bottom the heads of state and everything else. We've got the buck privates chasing us. But the buck privates have been good students too. They know just exactly how to put us in harm's way. Jesus felt everything that we could possibly feel. He was tempted with everything that we could possibly be tempted, yet without sin. Now we're going to compare him with Melchizedek. The Bible says, we read it over there in Psalm 110, seated at the Father's right hand. Somewhere in here, we're going to see a verse in Exodus that talks about the mercy seat. I don't know why they translated it in the NIV cover. But it's a mercy seat. And the high priest 
could not sit down on the mercy seat because the way it was created was there were a pair of angels with their head with their wings covering over the seat the high priest could not sit down because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin but it wasn't the blood of goats and bullocks but the blood of the precious blood of Jesus Christ nobody could sit on that mercy seat until Jesus and when you read through Exodus and it talks about the tabernacle and all the pieces of furniture Every one of those is a pattern of what's in heaven. The difference with the one that's in heaven, those angels weren't made of gold. They were real angels. And when Jesus came, the angels would say, have a seat, your highness. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. So there are those three. And here's a verse that pulls all three of those together. But the ministry, that's the priesthood, Jesus' priesthood has, has at that he received. It's better than, it's superior than the other high priests, as is the covenant. The verse that we're going to hit will come from Luke's gospel. It won't be tonight, uh, today. And Jesus says, this is the cup, this is at the Last Supper. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Talking about his blood. So it's a better covenant and it's a better sacrifice. Jesus was the lamb. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, he refers to himself as the lamb more often than anything else. He's referred there as a lion. He's referred there as a human being. But the most common is the lamb. He was the better sacrifice and founded on better promises. You read Romans chapter 8, and the Bible said... What the law could not do because of the weakness of our flesh, Jesus Christ could do. And so he gives us better promises. The promises in the law are all your own promise to die. If you're an adulterer, you die. If you disobey your parents, you die. If you do this, that, or the other thing, you die. There's nothing in the law that talks of eternal life or life at all. I want you to notice the difference in tenses as we go through here. And this, once again, goes back to once for all. Chapter 8 talks about who serves, present tense, progressive, who is serving in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, versus what he said on the cross down at the bottom. It is finished. When he finished his life on earth, he had completed everything that was in the law and the prophets relative to the Messiah. He became the positioned Messiah. He came as the, as, as the, the Messiah. The woman at the well said, Come see a man which told me all things that I did. Is not this the Christ? Is not this the Messiah? Well, he was the Messiah. But he didn't get fulfilled. We, we studied, I think, last week that he was he learned obedience through suffering. He didn't get the full conclusion until he died. And if it stopped there, that's why it's present tense, present progressive, he is serving. If it stopped with his death, we'd be in the same position as people that follow Confucius or Buddha. Those guys are still in the grave. 
But Jesus is not in the grave. Again, from Luke's gospel, he is risen indeed. So the earthly mercy seat was protected by the cherubim. I just covered that, and there's the verse that, that gives you the, the, the reference. But in heaven, there are no cherubim that are protecting the mercy seat. They're there worshiping. For there is one God and one mediator. Once again, watch the tenses. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, who gave himself as a ransom. Jesus died once and for all. He saved me once and for all. And so now he lives to make intercession for me. The Bible says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's there and he's able. He meets my needs. So now we're going to talk about the covenant, the Sinai covenant. When, you, when I say the word typical, it doesn't mean John's just a typical teacher. That's not what it means. There's a type and an anti-type, sort of like a shadow and the real thing. So the Sinai covenant was a shadow. It was not the real thing. But the new covenant has substance. It has Jesus Christ as its center. The Sinai covenant had a Levitical priesthood, but the new covenant has a perfect priesthood. He's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Sinai covenant was external, but the new covenant is spiritual. When in chapter 6, the author says, you got to get away from your, you have to repent of your dead deeds, dead works. He was talking about all the trappings of the law, the circumcision. Circumcision now is a question of personal preference. The killing of turtle doves, all of those rubrics, the, the notion of you had to go to Jerusalem every Passover, all that stuff was external stuff. This is spiritual stuff. Paul wrote, he said, the, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. The natural man can't know them. The Sinai covenant was restricted to Israel, but I'm so thankful that the new covenant is for whosoever will come. The Sinai covenant covers types and shadows. The new covenant is the real thing. The Sinai covenant, the Holy Spirit visited. When David prayed, when he was repenting of Bathsheba and Uriah, he said, restore unto me thy free spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't an indwelling spirit. That began on the day of Pentecost. When Samson had his hair cut off and Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you. The Bible said, he wished not, he didn't know, he wished not that the Spirit had departed from him. The Spirit came and went. There was salvation. It was an eternal salvation, but there wasn't an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We'll be covering that shortly. The Holy of Holies was shut out. That was the purpose of that veil. And that veil was there in the, the tabernacle in the desert. It was there in Solomon's uh, temple. It was there in Zerubbabel's temple. It was there in Herod's temple. And that's the one that got split. And the book of Ezekiel doesn't talk about a veil. 
Because that veil is, is split, we have access. The book of Romans in chapter 5 says, by faith, we, we have access through faith. The Sinai Covenant talked of terror. God and Moses were dialoguing, and when God spoke, everybody heard him, and the people said to, to Moses, have God speak through you, because if he says another word, we will die. Compare that with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I will be their God, in verse 10, that font is a little tiny. I will be their God, and he will. What will God do for us? First, he will say, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Jesus forgave me of my sins. He didn't say, John, go clean up your act and come back. He took me, as the song says, just as I was. And he continues to keep me just as I am. He not only saved me, he put a divine nature into my heart. This is the passage that talks about adding to your faith, knowledge, and to knowledge, virtue, etc. The different seven steps to godliness and ultimately to love. He says, through these, talking about grace, through these he has given up given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate now, participate now in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world. He's giving me directions by the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit of God. It's interesting, when you study the temptations of Christ, there's Matthew's Gospel, which presents Christ as King, and there's Mark's gospel that's presenting Christ as the suffering servant. And in Matthew's gospel, at, when he left the baptism and was going into the, into the desert, the Bible says he was led into the desert by the Spirit. In Mark's gospel, it says he was driven into the desert by his Spirit. But we're being told that we are led by the Spirit because we're the children of God. So he saves us, he gives us a divine nature, he's directing us by his Holy Spirit, he's leading us by the Holy Spirit, and he has sealed us to the day of, the, of, of redemption. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? Disobedience, okay? Disobedience, what is disobedience? The Bible says that which is not of faith is sin. So when you doubt, that's a sin. The Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. John, you just said that Jesus fulfilled the law. Well, he did fulfill the law, but you know what? He took that law and in many cases made it more intense. The law says thou shalt not kill. Yet Jesus said if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, if you think on a woman the wrong way, you're guilty of adultery. And it goes deeper in many of those moral issues on other things like the dietary laws. 
Jesus sent that tablecloth down filled with all kinds of goodies. I wish I were there because I would have really cleaned up. God said, don't call what God has created unclean. That which is not of faith is sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. And he that knoweth to do good and doeth, doeth it not to him, it is sin. Above and beyond the law, we have certain convictions of things that God is telling us to do or not to do. And if we go in the wrong direction, that is sin. And that's grieving the Holy Spirit. He supplies every need. Remember that verse that I tossed up first? He will meet our needs. And he will meet our needs according to his riches of his glory. When I was saved, I traded in my Yugo for a Ferrari. And some would say, oh, what am I going to do with all these fun sins? In fact, I had a fraternity brother I was testifying to, and he asked that very question. He said, what am I going to do about my fun sins? I said, don't worry about those things. God will take care of them. And he did. He'll not allow us to be over-tempted. There's no temptation taking you, but that which is common to man. God, you don't understand. My wife is nagging me and the kids are screaming and the car's broken down. Those things are all common to man. Whatever, whatever my situation is, God has heard it before. But he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that we're able to bear it. He's not going to give me utopia here. Job said, just as sure as sparks go upward, man is born to trouble. But we'll do is he'll take, him, take care of me while I'm here. And here's the best one. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, neither, neither will I leave you, never will I forsake you, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals, including me, do to me? You read Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. The punchline is, nothing is able to separate me from the love which is in Christ Jesus. But it goes through and it says, nothing in heaven and nothing in earth and nothing under the earth. And no creature, including this creature. And nothing past, present, or future. Meaning my sins, he paid for them once for all. Nothing is able to separate me from the love which is in Christ Jesus. And I'm three minutes early, but I have nothing else to say. Questions or comments?